Today on The Black Goat, what happens when different researchers study the same hypothesis? We talk about a new mega-study on crowdsourcing hypothesis tests. And a letter about being scooped. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier. And uh, so, you guys, I had this funny experience this morning where, so I have this sweater, which I really like, and some fucking mods, like, ate holes in it. Um, and so I took it to the local, to, like, the, the, a tailor shop here in town, um, which, first of all, I'm, I'm, I can never predict how much, if I take stuff to the tailor, it's going to cost, like... I would have thought this would be, like, difficult to do, you know, but it's, like, if you need, like, a pair of pants hemmed or something, it's, like, 40 bucks, and then mm-hmm. to fix my, my poor sweater, it was, like, 5 bucks, and it looks great, right? But so, you know, so I pick up the sweater, it, it looks really nice, I go back to my car, I open the door to put my sweater back in the car, and a fucking moth flies out of my, my car. <laughs> I'm just like, you guys, give me a fucking break. Like, just give me, give me like a day before you start eating. This is what I'm trying to tell people. Moths are evil. This they is why are. I don't like, buy nice clothes. I, you <laughs> know, if, if, I, if I find a spider in my house, I'll like catch it and release it outside. But if I find a moth, now that they've been going after my sweaters, I'm just going to squash those little fuckers. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no. So I was thinking about this. Like I, I didn't used to be like a, a get your clothing tailored or repaired or whatever person. And I think some of it is like as when I was younger, you know, I just I had less money. And so I'd buy cheaper stuff and I just assumed it would fall apart. And now you know, I, I like, I actually like grow attached to sweaters. Like I really like the sweater. And so I was like, Oh, I want to keep it. Um, but yeah, do you guys like get, and I was, I was also thinking about like just more in general, like, especially having a kid because he has so many toys that are just like cheap plastic ship over from China crap, whatever, you know, like if a toy breaks, you just throw it away because it's broken. But like, you know, there's some stuff that I'll totally try to get fixed. Like, how do you, yeah, do you guys, are you, like, fixers when your stuff breaks? Like, do you fix it yourself? Like, would you darn your own sweater? Would you take it somewhere? Or would you just be like, fuck it, I'm going to throw this thing away? I had a conversation about this kind of thing with Yoel a few months ago when he was visiting. Um, and he noted that I'm not very fancy. And one of the pieces of evidence that he gave for me not being very fancy is that I don't get new things. Um, so I think he was, like, pointing out that my purse is really, like, battered and frayed and and I'm very far away from the point where I think that I should get a new purse um and I also have a lot of clothing that has holes in it and things like that so I don't think I've ever gotten an article of clothing repaired and perhaps maybe not even altered in any way but I did recently get um shoes fixed and I have to do that well I don't have to do that but I ruin shoes extremely quickly, which I I must not know how to walk. So I like will wear off the heels on shoes within like a really mm-hmm. short amount of time of buying them. Um, so it actually is maybe advantageous for me to pay to fix shoes because paying to fix them costs like 15 or 20 bucks, whereas buying new shoes is more expensive. But otherwise, nothing that I own is worth fixing. I remember when I met you, I think you had just run or you were just about to run a marathon with your dad, maybe in DC. And I remember being surprised because you pronate. Is it is this pronate or anyway, the one where your toes point out? So I'm not surprised that you think you my toes point out when you walk. I think so. Or I remember that you walked funny. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been <laughs> okay, told so that I, mean, I walked funny. I, wait, I you gotta, walk funny I gotta, too. Gotta, it's true. What, I know well, yeah, what, you're what, say. what is it with you critiquing people's gait, Samin? This is this is now like a pattern. I thought it was yeah. me. Now I now I think it's you. No, like, it's uh... just the two of you. <laughs> I've never critiqued anyone else's gait besides the two of you. Yet. <laughs> I have a sweater that has a bunch of holes in it because when my dog, when Hugo was younger, he was more bitey. He would j- jump and bite me, and so he made holes in some of my clothes. But it's the one I got at the Goat Cafe in Eugene, and so I don't want to throw it out, but it's like a hoodie, so it's, it's not a very really important worth sweater. Prepared. But I went back to that place last time I was in Eugene, and they didn't have any sweaters anymore, any hoodies. Mm. So I have to keep wearing the one with the holes. 
Yeah. It's an interesting thing. Like, I, I also think about this in terms of, like, waste and recycling and that kind of thing. Um, you know, like, getting stuff repaired is better than, you know, like, throwing it away. Like, I my car is now 17 years old, I think. And I, you know just keep getting it repaired every time something happens and it's like it's it's in pretty good condition for a 17 year old car but I've kind of like it's so you know cars are just like so much waste and whatever that I've kind of resolved to like drive it until it runs into the ground yeah I think that's Um, definitely true with cars but I feel like I just saw something on Twitter about how like you can send back something and it was like some very maybe it was a kid's toy or something and they'll recycle it and I'm like well are you shipping it across the country for them to recycle it because that doesn't (laughs) seem like sometimes I think we take it too far to like do the like kind of what we think of as the right thing but actually it the calculation is probably very very complicated about whether it's actually better but cars I think the calculation is simple yeah well one of the things um... that I talked about with you all was like um, whether you like getting new things and for most things I really don't especially if it's something where you have one and you would be replacing it so like I have no desire to ever get a new car I would have my car forever if I could computers I hate replacing phones I hate replacing um, so there's like not there's no like excitement for me in getting new versions of most things um, so that affects the mass for me I'll keep things for a long time that's really interesting, because especially like technology stuff, like phones, oh, no. you know, yeah. a lot of people Such are excited to get a new phone because they want the latest features, but you, you, you're just like fine with I think it's the phone a, you got forever. I think it's a personality flaw of mine. Like I, um, <laughs> yeah, very unexcited about new features. I'm, I'm like an old lady. I'm like, there's too many options. <laughs> I don't want to learn how to use the new options. I'm like dreading having to get a new phone because I have the 5S, which is like the last one they made that was still small enough to fit in like a woman's pocket. Um, And so I'm like dreading when I have to get a new phone, I won't be able to get one that... Yeah, you and I got our phones at the same time, I think, but I dropped mine in the... Yeah, we so we have uh, or we had a had and now have a ki- a KitchenAid mixer, which you know those like those nice you know, and it's it's great for like baking and all kinds of stuff. But a couple of years ago, it it broke and uh, it was like making this awful grinding sound and it wasn't working right. And so I like got on the internet and I you know typed in the symptoms and and it said like oh there's this one part that, you know, when it does this, it's almost always this one part. And you have to, like, take it apart, but you can do it yourself. Um, and you have to buy the part. And it's, like, messy because you have to, like, put all this, like, grease in there or whatever. But I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. So I, like, ordered the part in the tube of grease or whatever, and I do it. And I guess we were, like, the one out of ten times when it's not that one part that does this. And essentially, like, so, you know, I, either that or I fucked it up. But I, I'm pretty sure I did it right. And, and so, like, it was still doing the thing it was doing. And so essentially it would have, like, the next step up would have been to, like, take it to some repair shop and it probably would have amounted to the cost of a new mixer. So for, like, two years we had it still sitting on our counter because, like, we couldn't bring ourselves to get rid of it and we couldn't bring ourselves to replace it. And then, like, finally, you know, we, we you know, we got it replaced recently or we got a new one. But now I can't bring myself to throw, to, to like, get rid of it. And, and I'm torn because there's a part of me that thinks like, oh, I could bring it to Goodwill um, because, you know, maybe there's somebody out there who would want to fix it. And I'm like, who wants like a fucked up KitchenAid mixer that I already know can't be repaired in the most straightforward way? And so like part of me is like there's this like scrapyard in town that like recycles metal and I could just take it there and drop it off. But I'm like, I feel so wasteful to bring like because it still looks great you know, it's just like shiny shiny red like you know fancy turn it into an anyway, art so project I don't know what to do. oh there you go <laughs> mm-hmm. what uh yeah what would uh what would i do with it if, listeners if you have any ideas for an <laughs> oh, art I project like with a busted out red kitchenaid mixer uh letters at the black goat podcast.com or just you can do like the like amity in that movie with the gnome where she takes pictures of it wherever she goes, like you bring it with you on trips and take pictures of like the KitchenAid mixer at the Continental Divide and the KitchenAid mixer at the at Niagara that, Falls. <laughs> that would be some serious dedication because this thing's fucking heavy know, as hell. It's kidding. like, <laughs> You'd have to maybe a on a road trip, trip or yeah. something. Yeah. Oh, anyway. Listeners, your idea has to be better than that. 
<laughs> yeah, right. it's not very hard. <laughs> we have a tradition uh, in my lab, well, among, yeah, my my advisor when I was in grad school one time gave me a gift of a ladle, like a big spoon la- uh, soup ladle, mm-hmm. but I don't cook at all. I think it was maybe for a housewarming gift or something. So I always kept it in my office. And then when my first graduate student graduated, I gave her the ladle and then I think she gave it to her first graduate student so it's like gone many generations now it's like this office ladle that's cool <laughs> so even though it was useless to me it I tr- it turned into something meaningful oh boy well that's another idea then my next grad student yeah graduate is gonna get a busted out <laughs> yeah that's that's my favorite suggestion so far uh all right well should we uh should we do our letter now yeah let's do the letter right. hi the black goat I've been working on a systematic review, and during my gray literature search, I contacted a number of authors asking them about failed replications in file drawer studies. In the interest of transparency, I included a link to my pre-registration to show that the request was in good faith, and I wasn't trying to thug the authors. However, in the past two weeks, there have been two suspiciously similar review articles, one of which was from um, from the two of the authors I contacted. I don't know whether I'm being paranoid, And there are enough differences and scant evidence of foul play, but I am concerned that my plan may have um, been used to inform these studies without being cited or acknowledged. I wonder, at what point is it acceptable to confront journals or authors about potential scooping? Have you ever been scooped or accused of scooping? All the best, Scoopy-Doo. This is interesting because everyone always says like, oh, I've never heard of any case of scooping from sharing like a Mm pre-registration. So if this is that, then it would be a counterexample to that claim. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say from the details of, of this letter, how likely it is that they had been scooped. Um, But I definitely, my, my prior is that scooping is very rare. Um, so my first guess would be that this could be a, a coincidence. Yeah. I think I'd need to know the topic to get a sense of whether it's like, if they're like doing a systematic review of the relationship between moral judgment and disgust or something like that, I feel like that would be very likely that other people might be Mm -hmm. doing a systematic review of that. Like it's been, there's been a lot of discussion of that, but if it's like something much narrower that hasn't been talked about a lot, then I would, I think, yeah, like. I guess my prior is also that that's unlikely, but I think the other thing I feel is that even if that is what's going on, I don't really think it's wrong. I mean, it might be uh-huh. lightly wrong, but not wrong in the sense of like, even if you knew that that was what happened, I wouldn't confront the journals. What would you say? Like they did it. I mean, they should have attributed it if that's where they got the idea, but that's the only real thing you could ask of them is to attribute where the idea came from Mm -hmm. you couldn't ask them to not to slow down or not do it until you've done it or whatever yeah i think i tend to feel like the uh penalties for scooping or the degree to which we should discourage scooping should be pretty low and that's for two reasons one is that i think that it depends on on what you mean exactly by scooping but let's say you mean that somebody hears that you have an idea and then they execute that idea um, without really, like, taking advantage of, like, a lot of work that you've done. Um, I guess I feel like most finished research projects are, um, they, they should be rewarded for the work and not for the idea. So I remember being in grad school, uh, one of my friends basically said, like, we shouldn't worry about scooping because ideas are a dime a dozen. And I sort of feel that way, that, like, it's the work that's important and not so much the idea. And the other thing I think is that um, people forget where they hear ideas. So I don't, I'm not optimistic that we can expect people to remember and attribute where they found, where they had heard of ideas before. Um, I think that, like, there have been instances where I've had an idea about something and then I've seen it executed and that it's the, I think the execution that deserves the, the recognition. Um, and I think people like, yeah, people forget where they hear the idea and they get, it gets muddled with their own ideas about things and related thoughts that they might have about things. And, and let's say they looked at the pre-registration they thought, wow, that's the wrong way to go about reviewing this literature. 
I would like to do a systematic review, what I think is the right way. Mm -hmm. And maybe in their mind, they didn't think they would finish before this person because this person had a head start. So like they weren't trying to scoop. Like, again, I think they, it would have been good and maybe even necessary to attribute, to give credit to the, the letter writers for the idea in the first place. But like, it would be weird to do that. I don't know. I could understand how, why they might not, if they were like, well, then we'd have to say, we were motivated by thinking this person was wrong or there was a flaw in their method. Anyway, mm-hmm. I don't, I think that would be an okay yeah. motivation if that was their motivation. It, I, yeah, I, I, I think that, I think that issue of the definition of scooping is, yeah. is really ambiguous to me from right. what they mean in the letter, because I, I, some of this stuff I'm not sure I would say is scooping or that you have to cite it. And it's obviously a continuum. There's a gray zone, right? But like, you know, a systematic review First of all, like typically a, a systematic review, you're already working on a question that at some level people have already published on, right? right. That's the the point of doing the systematic review. So if it's just if the idea is just let's do a systematic review of blah blah blah, um, well there are already studies of blah blah blah. Right. That's how you're doing the systematic review, and 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 even in the case of primary research, like I've definitely seen people get territorial and label as scooping things that are really general like let's look at the correlation between this variable and that variable it's like well okay that like if you can like if you can if if what was being stolen can be said in one sentence it's probably Mm -hmm. like unless that's some really clever like you know bizarre uh, you know non-obvious sentence or whatever I don't know that I would call that scooping like to me scooping is like if if the article was already out and you had an obligation to cite that article because this idea is unique to that article because it's a novel scientific insight or discovery or yeah. whatever, then I'd say like we're into to the territory. But if it's just like let's look at blah blah blah, and I, I like again I can't tell from from this letter what they mean, but the fact that it's a systematic review makes me wonder. Like, unless, you know, but it is possible, like, you could, you could look at a pre-registration, you could say, like, oh, this is a really good way to code, or, like, oh, I didn't have the idea to do this moderator, um, and there's a good theoretical reason to do that, and, and I'm going to take that from mm-hmm. them, and, and they thought of, like, they developed the theory for looking at it or whatever, like, that would be more, you know, more into the, like, worrisome zone. Um, well, yeah, I also yeah. think even in the more clear-cut cases of, like, yeah, you would call this scooping. I think 80% of the time you're just like, yeah, bad luck. Too bad it happened to you. But it's not like yeah. wrong in some deeper sense. It's just unlucky or something like that. Like, Yeah, I mean, Samin, you and I had a are, case where we we were independently on papers yeah. that looked at the same basic question. Yeah, and we the, had both groups had come up with that independently, right? The, yeah, the perceiver, perceiver effects, effects stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, you know, we know that that happens. That's happened to me twice, actually. That was one time. And then there was another time when... Uh, back when I was doing my postdoc, was working on a paper of uh, optimism and relationship outcomes in couples. And right around the time ours was like getting close to the end of the editorial process, I was asked to review another paper that was looking at virtually identical questions, same mediators, same whatever. And I knew there was no way that they had gotten it from us. It was just like, oh, yeah, this is like, of course, this is like, this is an interesting question. And these are like some pretty straightforward ways you'd go about answering it. But even if like they had gotten case, it from I mean, you, like, yeah, so what? Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, well, you know, like, then you would say like, yeah, they should cite they, maybe it, they yeah. should cite it or whatever, unless it's just like, yeah, like, like I was saying, if it's just like, oh, this is what anybody like, this is a good question. This is what anybody would have thought of doing that. It's like, I mean, it would be nice to cite us, but I guess like, like, if they had t- gotten it from us, it would be nice to cite us. If they hadn't, then, no, they shouldn't have to cite us. Um, or at least they shouldn't have to credit us. Maybe they, like, cite us in the sense of there's another study on this topic mm-hmm. so that people know there's cumulative evidence or whatever, but not, like, credit us for the idea if we didn't give it to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only case I can think of that I heard of, and I can't give a lot of details, but um, I heard of a case where research team A contacted research team B to ask if they could use an unpublished measure that research team B had developed, um, but they could only get it if research team B shared it with them. And research team B said, okay, but like, we want to finish this other thing first and like kind of got agreement from research team A not to use it in a published thing until they'd finished whatever, maybe it was like a valid validation work on it or something. I can't remember. But then research team A submitted Mm -hmm. a manuscript 
before that agreed upon deadline. So that seems to me, well, like, first, independent of any issue of scooping or whatever, if research team A really did promise not to do something until X time, then they should honor that. Whether research team B should have asked for that promise is a different question. But, like, in that case, they held the information. It wasn't yet public. And so, you know, they could impose those conditions if they wanted to, I guess, because they had no obligation to even share the measure. I mean, we could say if they had... Yeah, in the interest of like scientific knowledge and so on, they should have shared it regardless. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting. Uh, something um, I think Alexa, did you say this that like, or maybe both of you guys said this that like scooping you don't feel like is common. I I I feel like that's definitely true in the circles I run in. I do feel like I hear more people expressing concerns in some areas or some fields than others. And and it, it, I think it says something interesting about psychology, or at least our sort of, you know, sub area of psychology that like, because I, I do think that there are some fields where there's like, that are just much more cumulative fields, right, where there's an important problem lots of people in the field agree that it's an important problem, that they're working on it, and there's a very clear, uh, like, there's a very clear criterion for what it means to have answered the question or solved the problem. Like, we're, you know, we're all trying to discover the structure of this enzyme, or we're all trying to, like, find out if this particle is real or what its mass is, or, you know, whatever. Um, And and I, I do hear a lot more, like, not even just about scooping, but also just about the time pressure to be the first to get to the answer. Like, I think that's a huge deal in physics, mm-hmm. right? That, like, there'll be, you know, there'll be, like, a handful of questions that everybody's working on, and every and it's a race to be first. Um, so I don't, I don't want to, and I think that might be maybe, so, so there might be, like, some areas of psychology where that's a right. little bit more true. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to totally dismiss, like, scooping. Yeah. But I do feel like for social personality, for a lot of areas of developmental, clinical... Um, it it doesn't feel like the same thing. It's just it, we don't have well-defined problems that everybody sees the same way. Yeah, right. Like a small number of well-defined problems that everyone sees the same way. During our discussion, I was trying to think, like, what would I count as scooping and say, like, this is this is wrong for a researcher to do. And I think it's a fairly narrow subset of things. Like, I mean, the example that you gave, Samin, is also like an example where somebody, yeah, lied to somebody so... Um, that seems like we can decide that it's wrong for, for reasons that are independent of scooping. But I think you sort of touched Sanjay on the idea of like how unique is this contribution. And I think, I think a lot of what we do overlaps with what other people do. And it's not always clear what a really unique contribution is. Um, I, I'm imagining like, let's say somebody pre-registers the development of a new technique that includes some really sort of like novel insight that realistically um, it was unlikely that somebody else would have had that. And and so somebody else sees that pre-registration and thinks, oh, that's a really good insight and develops the technique on their own. That would rub me the wrong way. But that's, um, I think the instances of, of being influenced by another person and then doing the work and coming up with a research project yourself that I would count as problematic scooping are probably pretty small proportion of yeah and that happens all the time right like we go to talks at conferences and we get ideas often they're like not very close to the talk but it wouldn't be that weird I wouldn't think it was bad if someone heard a talk and was like oh I want to test that question too yeah I mean yeah if they don't cite the yeah other study that was done before Mm -hmm. that's bad but like yeah, I mean, I guess now with pre-registration or with, like, stage one things, like, now there are even conferences where you can give talks about a study that you haven't run yet or things like that. That Then this idea of, like, taking someone else's idea and doing it faster than them before they even have a chance mm-hmm. to finish it is coming up more. But another area where it would be wrong is, and I don't know how you would prevent this from happening, but is as reviewers, we're not supposed to use the information we see in the papers in our own work or like talk to other people about it and so on. But how do you stop yourself from having similar ideas or being interested in pursuing similar questions after reviewing a paper? And like you said, you might not remember that's where you got the idea. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's almost something like a source of creativity that you don't want to eliminate. 
But yeah, I was also thinking another situation that would rub me the wrong way is, again, if we're talking about the sort of extreme instances where somebody's seeing a pre-registration and obviously people are working on a project, but a situation where, let's say, like a lab with a lot more prestige or power or resources got that idea um, and then executed the idea much faster than like some a lab that had fewer resources or more junior researchers or something like that. So uh, I don't know if that's like, I guess we could debate whether there's anything technically wrong with that, but that would bug me. Yeah. I mean, I think the flip side is that, you know, with reviewers, there are experts in the field. And I, I do think that we sometimes underestimate the frequency with which things are developed independently. Right. Like the, you know, and, and like I said, I've had a couple like pretty substantial papers that I've been part of that someone else right around the same time came up with something that had a lot of like asked the same question and had a lot of parallels to and that it was extremely clear to me that there had been no communication in either direction. Um, and so, yeah, so I think like that's that's why it's just it's hard when you see this happening like that, you know, that big well-resourced lab might have stolen it. But they also like they've got a lot of people who are part of the same field and, you know, they might have thought of it, too. Like, I think sometimes people give their own ideas a little bit too much credit um, for for how like novel or or whatever they are. Or you yeah. both might have been in, you both might have been inspired by the same third, like you both mm-hmm. might have been at the same talk and both stole it from the same or were inspired yeah. by the same third person. Very whatever, true. Yeah, yeah. You know. And yeah. it's also yeah, it's unclear what a new idea is, right? Like I was trying to think of this example of like an an insight that's really new and very unique that I would say like here's an example of something where if somebody had talked about this and then somebody else had written a paper about it, I would have been like, that's not okay. Um, but it's really hard for me to do that actually. Um, because yeah, because ideas build so much on each other. Um, also I sometimes forget that I had my own ideas. Like if I go through back through like journals, so I have like a notebook usually in my purse, I'll rewrite down the same idea multiple times and like, they'll be like, it's like the third time I've written it down and there's like a big star next to it. Like, oh yeah, I had this idea. So it's like, I think it's quite a lot to ask that people remember how they came up with ideas, especially like when it's such an incremental process. And a lot of this wouldn't matter if journals didn't care so much about novelty, at least for empirical questions. Mm -hmm. If two teams are doing a good job testing the same question, you should want to publish both sets of evidence in the case of systematic review, it's more complicated because then you're using the same data and it's unlikely that you would, I mean, it's not impossible, but it's, it's, there's more of a chance that you would produce completely redundant or one would be a subset of the other papers. And then a journal could reasonably not want to publish both. Or as our main topic is going to get into, yeah. maybe not, right, but right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's a kind of an interesting test of like, you give the same Liter. This is like sort of. This is kind of like our main topic, or like meta analysts, but at the systematic review meta analysis le- mm-hmm. level, right? You give the same primary literature to two teams and see right. if they reach the same. But I guess in the case of a systematic review meta analysis, I wouldn't. It would happen. I think I would imagine that would happen quite often. That one is just clearly better than the other, and the mm-hmm. the less good one is just not necessary once you have the better one. Whereas with empirical studies, that's rarely the case. That one subsumes the other, or makes the other one irrelevant. At, even if they're identical, it's more data points, which makes a more precise estimate. Right. Actually, yeah. just to return to our letter for a quick minute, maybe before we move on. Um, would you guys think that it was wrong if somebody, let's say somebody had, um, I guess, already made publicly available the work that they had done on a systematic review? Um, I assume you guys would find it uh, problematic if somebody were to take that work and use it. So let's say they've come up with like a comprehensive list of studies or, um, yeah, like they've compiled a list of effect sizes or something like that. Only without attribution. If if they make without it public. Attribution. It, yeah. I, right, right, right. I assume that's I guess that's what, what I imagine. it was for. But yeah, without attribution, of course it's wrong. Yeah, right, right. right. You'd be lying about how you compu- created the database. Yeah, right. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, thank you, Scoopy-Doo, for your letter. Um, and for your name. <laughs> and Yeah, yeah. 
points for uh, creative sign off. Um, yeah, so listeners, if you would like to email us, you can reach us. We're letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. You can send us letters to read and try to answer and discuss on an episode, or you can just send us any thoughts or feedback or ideas uh, that you want to get in touch with us about. Um, you can find us on Twitter. We're at blackgoatpod. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackgoatpod. You can find us on Instagram, instagram.com slash blackgoatpod. I feel like since the two of you guys are in the same place, you should be posting more to the Instagram. That, that seems to be like our our threshold for Instagramming is like if there's at least two of us in the picture. Although I, I actually like when when you guys have sometimes posted solo or Hugo pictures or whatever. Yeah, I keep thinking uh, of posting on the Instagram and then I forget about it. Thank you for the reminder, Sanjay. I'll post something soon. I think right now, like, the top picture or the most recent picture is you, Alexa. So you've, you, you're you almost like our pinned Insta mm-hmm. or something because you've been on there for so long. But, yeah, we should, uh, we should keep... I'll uh, update it. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to send the wrong take, like, message that it's okay to post a million pictures of Hugo on Instagram. So I have to... you're falling in love with hugo (laughs) you just post some like weird creepy candids of samin for like you know when she's not looking or whatever um yeah uh alexa gets Um, to see what my hair looks like first thing in the morning (laughs) oh wow you you sent a a a picture uh, like a selfie recently your hair was doing some pretty amazing the first like hour that i'm up it's crazy and then it falls it also makes me look crazy because when you guys send pictures in WhatsApp, it automatically gets saved to my photo album. You can change that setting. <laughs> well, I haven't changed that setting. So, like, if I show somebody else my photo album, it's, like, interspersed with, like, just random pictures of Samin's weird hair. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I Now that I know that you have that setting, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to think about how I can, like, culture jam your phone or something. Um, cool. Uh, well, yeah. So, so should we talk about our main topic? Yeah. Yeah, our, our main, main topic. topic. Is cool. Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, so we wanted to talk about. There's a, a paper um, with uh, uh, that that is it out yet or is it in press? Anyway, it's it's coming out in Psychological Bulletin. It's publicly available psych- anyway. It's publicly available. Yeah, we'll post a link in the uh, in the show notes. Um, uh, Psychological Bulletin, or as the cool kids say, Psych Bull. Um, and it's uh, the title of the paper is Crowdsourcing Hypothesis Tests, Making Transparent How Design Choices Shape Research Results. Um, and it, it got some coverage. Uh, Christy Ashwanden covered it in Wired. We'll post a link to that right up as well. Um, yeah, so Justin Landy, uh, um, Eric Ullman, and a whole, like 30 or 40 people in between on the, on the list. But so it was a really interesting concept and a really interesting execution so it's another one of these like crowdsourced many labsy kinds although it's not officially a many labs um but so the the gist of it is that they um uh they gave was it five i think hypotheses That's right. to different research teams and the hypotheses were they were not like highly specified like a statistical hypothesis they were they were at the in they were verbal hypotheses yeah in the and way they were intentionally about. i think undirectional so they were maybe more like research questions than hypotheses mm-hmm. yeah and and so they were so they gave them to or they they had a directional and a non-directional version but right, the, no the one, the but, participating um, labs only saw the non-directional version oh they only saw the non-directional right so so like i'll give you an example when directly asked, do people explicitly self-report an awareness of harboring negative automatic associations with members of negatively stereotyped social groups? So that was one. Another one was, are negotiators who make extreme first offers trusted more, less, or the same relative to negotiators who make moderate first offers? Mm-hmm. This might be very relevant to any listeners on the job market right now. Um, so, so they were, they were, that was like the, the, the level of the hypothesis or the level of specificity. They gave them to a whole bunch of different research teams and they said to the research teams, all right, design a study, design a study to test this hypothesis. And then, and they had, I think they had to be testable in an online setting. Right. And then they, they ran all the studies essentially. And what they found was that, um, I think for four out of the five hypotheses, 
there there were you could find at least one significant study in both directions, both for and against the hypothesis, as well as like some null ones. Um, that the effect sizes were all over the place. Um, you could meta-analyze and decide whether you support or don't, but but the sort of study-to-study variation was quite sizable. And, and like I said, it, it was uh, variation not just in magnitude, but in, in sign, in, in the direction of the effect. Um, so, yeah, so this, I think it's a super interesting study. You all should read it. We'll, like I said, we'll post a link. Um, and I think it... it it, it, you know, another one of these, I'm just always impressed. I was telling my lab this the other day, like, we're we're working on the AIID study, which is uh, based on a project implicit. And I was like, the people that do these really big, like, large data set, but like multi-site kind of studies, um, they must just be really fucking good at email. <laughs> like, that's, I mean, that's my first thing. I look at this and I'm like, the people who ran this thing must be so goddamn good at email to be able to have coordinated like 30 or 40. Right. People. Good at replying to emails and good at getting people to reply to your emails. <laughs> yeah. Just like, I know, next right? Level. That, that's like even, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, although I think, I think I'm, I might be better at getting people to reply than I am at replying. I would guess that um, that's true. Not, yeah. <laughs> but I think, <laughs> well, you know how I am at replying, so that's it's a pretty low bar. But I've uh. I've become bad at email, but I can still be good in a specific domain. Like I can decide that okay, for like if I'm editor of a journal, I'm not going to slack on that, or like with my grad students, I'm not going to slack on that. But I'm terrible at everything else. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe so it's there, possible even if you're, not, gen, if you're not not globally good at email. To do something like this. If you're shitty at email, you still might be able to do a many labs. Maybe. That's, uh, I don't that's know. what we're... Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But one other cool thing I thought about this study, so the, the five hypotheses they picked were hypotheses that there was some research team that had already done a study testing one version of that mm-hmm. but hadn't published it yet so that other labs wouldn't know how it was tested in the original. But they included a direct replication of that original study as one of the instantiations of that hypothesis test. And so we have both information on what proportion of the five directly replicated and then what proportion of the five were, were like found evidence for the hypothesis, for the original hypothesis in the conceptual replications. And so it was interesting that out of five, all five direct replications found results consistent with the original. So, so like an effect in the same direction, Mm -hmm. but only two of the five found evidence consistent with the original when you include all the different variations, all the ways of testing it. So like for me, when you you meta analyze over them. Yeah. And one thing that, I mean, obviously they're very, very careful about not generalizing to other hypotheses beyond these five, Yeah. but it raises a question about like, okay, so when we do these direct replication projects, like RPP or the social science replication project, and we get these estimates of the direct replicability of those, let's say it's 50% or whatever how many of those would replicate under this would be robust to alternative operationalizations and so on. It certainly wouldn't be a hundred percent. So if you care about that, the like slightly broader version of the hypothesis, which presumably is what we care about, then the direct replication stuff is like a very high end estimate of how many of those hypotheses are true. not just in the very narrow sense of how the original study tested it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, that, that distinction, I mean, when I, yeah, when I saw this, like, I think like that, that test within it, and then also just thinking about the, um, uh, like the many labs studies and some of the other ones where, where there's different sites doing the same thing and how little heterogeneity there is in, in the direct mm-hmm. replication studies. Yeah. So, so it's both within this study, but then there's also now, yeah, very much accumulated, across like many labs and, and, and the other, some of those other crowdsource studies that um, direct replications in those, and you know, I, I think they're, they're in fairness to, to people that are skeptical of that, I think there's a good point that, that a lot of times those studies are online studies, there's relatively constrained, but that's not always the case. Um, and like the, the one we talked about last week, the, the terror management was done in person and there was very little heterogeneity. Um, and so, yeah, so I think what, you know, there's this larger question of heterogeneity between studies and the sort of hidden moderators question, right? And to me, when I put those two things together, you know, what it says is when we're trying to match the procedures, the context, the subject populations in ways that they're not identical, but that, that uh, like 
a, re- a good faith researcher says, yep, this is like, this is a direct replication. I, I've done a good enough job. Generally, they're right. And when they're either deliberately changing something or just leaving open those design choices because people don't know what other people are doing, that's where you get heterogeneity. So it's um, it's not hidden moderators. It's it's quote unquote moderators or it's it's design elements that are, you know, when we're not trying to do replications, when we're not trying to do exactly the same thing. And so so I think that there's something really important that it says about replications and replicability, which is it's just more evidence that like, yeah, maybe this is like just a different way of saying what you said to mean that like we should take direct replications seriously as repetitions of the original, not the original hypothesis in the really abstract sense, but of the original operationalization, operationalized hypothesis, the mm-hmm. sort of um, procedural and statistical hypothesis, not necessarily the scientific one. Mm-hmm. I was wondering what you guys, what your reaction was to the heterogeneity that they did observe. Um, so their interpretation was sort of like, there's, you know, there's just like a ton of heterogeneity, right? Effect sizes vary dramatically. Um, and that was sort of uh, Christy Ashwanden's take as well. Um, I think that, I mean, I, it depends a lot on your expectations from the start. And, you know, there is maybe um, a way to just talk about a problematic amount of heterogeneity if you're trying to come up with answers to questions. But I was, I thought that for at least some of them, the heterogeneity was maybe less than I would have expected. Um, did did you guys have a reaction to that in either direction? My reaction was I need benchmarks because I don't have, I don't, haven't yet developed an yeah, intuition okay. for how much these values mean in terms of heterogeneity. Mm-hmm. Right, that's, that's fair. Um, at least for the, I believe it's the second hypothesis. Um, they, so they found support, I think, for the second hypothesis and the um, like meta even the meta analysis of the conceptual replications or whatever, however you want to call them. Um, and it seems like most of the different operationalizations have effects that um, are in the same direction and are often significant. And so for that, I was like impressed that for a research question you could allow a bunch of labs to test it however they want and get like a pretty clear answer um and this is sort of like post hoc but i wonder if um i wonder if there are implications for the kinds of hypotheses that we generate or the kinds of research questions so i wonder if we can get better at generating research questions that can be clearly answered. Yeah, but I mean, I think it would be correlated with like just how obvious or intuitive or something that the it could be effect is like hypothesis two. I mean, I, I wish I had pr- tried to predict yeah, ahead of time, right, but right. In, in hindsight, hypothesis two is that uh, negotiators who make an extreme first offer are perceived as less trustworthy or it was stated in a neutral way. But the original finding was that they're perceived as less trustworthy mm-hmm. than negotiators who make a moderate first offer. I think that out of the five, I would have picked that one as like... What about... The most obvious. So the fifth one, I mean, I guess the fifth one is sort of on the cusp because the evidence for it is um, a little bit ambiguous, but that's like the relationship between... Deontological. Yeah. It's not ambiguous, actually. They say that even the authors of the fifth study agreed that the Bayesian analysis is right, that the evidence is strongly in favor of the null. The null. Um, So like in that, would you have said that's obviously null? I would, yeah, that one I feel confident a priori I would have said that sounds like bullshit. <laughs> I get, I, yeah, well, I mean, what's interesting too, I, guess I mean, I they, too. they did have, they had forecasters, right? And, yeah. and the forecasters, both within and between hypotheses, right? So the forecasters both knew which hypotheses, like meta analytically, would get more or less support, which is kind of goes to what you're saying, Alexa, or, or it goes to this issue of like, there's a prior on the hypothesis, but then also within hypothesis, when they when they saw the procedures, they could tell, oh yeah, this one's going to get a big effect or a small effect or this direction or that direction, right? So I didn't. I mean, to me, that's what what's interesting about that, and it wasn't they didn't find an expertise effect. Um, I want to. And what's about interesting expertise. about that is like you. I mean, there's there's an interesting question to me of when when they all go in the same direction. Yeah. Is that because is that a property of the hypothesis itself that the, the and and I think maybe in this case it is but right it could be a property of the hypothesis itself or it could be a property of a shared 
nudge direction. Definitely. Right? So if, if you can predict which way it's going to go, then that means the person making those design decisions in the design of the study can probably make yeah. some educated guesses. Well, if I use this measure or that measure, if I interpret this thing in this way versus that way, I can get it to go this direction or that direction. Yeah. And, you know, I thought I thought in, in the Wired article, like, it was very well done and responsible not going, because, like, the extreme form of that is just, like, oh, scientists can get whatever they want to get. And and I was really glad that Christy Ashwand and the, the journalist um, didn't go that far, because I think that would just be sort of nihilistic. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think it it opens up at least some uh, concern about how far in that direction it is possible. I don't think we're, like, completely unconstrained that we can just get evidence for anything we want to. But, uh, you know, it's like if, if there's heterogeneity, and if it's knowable before you see the data where within that space of heterogeneity you're more and less likely to get an effect, then that means that there's a lot of room for bias at the design phase. Yeah. Right. So one thing that they uh, commented on was that um, the independent ratings of the quality of the study design were positively correlated with the results. Um, And so... I guess that could mean that that's what happens when an, like an, a result is true or an effect is true. Um, so like you create a better way of testing that effect and you're more likely to observe it. Um, but I think it could also mean that um, for, certain, for certain of these effects, the researchers, although they were given non-directional research questions, could anticipate what the hypothesis, the most likely hypothesis would be and designed studies in such a way that they were sort of like attempting to achieve that result. Yeah, but there are some hypotheses where I think no matter how hard you tried, it would be quite hard to get an effect in the other direction. Yeah, and I think that their results are consistent with that. Yeah, Yeah. like if I said extroversion is correlated with happiness, I think it would be quite hard to design a study that passes like a basic validity test that would show the an effect in the opposite yeah, direction but but so that's one dimension just something about like how obvious the effect is but they also say and i think this is an important point that there's also variation in how verbally loose or how loose the hypotheses are um like and i think this differs across subfields and across fields so i think in social psych it's harder to make a verbal statement that produces very similar like quantitative predictions in people's heads um, but in psychophysics, it might be easier. There might be less latitude for construing a, a verbal hypothesis in different ways. Um, I think that's it. it I, I love this paper and I think it's amazing. Mm-hmm. But one thing I'll nitpick is they say that some hypotheses are, are theoretically underspecified and in parentheses, unlike the present hypotheses. And I'm like, what? Like, yeah, right. That, these seem to me like hypotheses. Not, it's not the author's fault, but these are just They're very hard to typical. appropriately specify yeah. a lot of social psych and high-level psych effects, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think what, what this, and that comparison to psychophysics is really interesting because w- one of the things this brings up for me really is like, there's been a lot of discussion, you know, in the past few years because of all the open science stuff, because of all the emphasis on replicability, you know, and actually even from the very be- beginning, people would say, what about theory? Um, and and often, I think oftentimes people who are focusing on replicability, they're like, yeah, theory is important. That's just not the, the like leg of the elephant I'm feeling around right now or whatever. But, but I think that we often think of theory as like in in the case of these five hypotheses we think of the theory as like the hypothesis and the stuff that's immediately around it and and you know and there's this old idea from like the duham quine thesis that like you can't empirically test a single theoretical proposition in isolation right that there's always supporting assumptions and and what's interesting to me in part about this is is it's not so much like a problem with the hypotheses themselves it's the fact that they're not embedded in a whole bunch of like consensus meaning right so so like in psychophysics one of the reasons that if you if you state some a hypothesis in words verbally in psychophysics other psychophysicists will have will probably in a lot of cases have very like similar understandings of what those things mean and how they translate into practice right um and and that's where like so you know some of those like 
supporting theories, auxiliary hypotheses, they're sometimes called in philosophy of science, are like methodological ones, like, you know, you're always like a test of hypothesis from a from a study, like one of the auxiliary hypotheses that has to be true is like the measures are valid, right? And, and like other things like that. But then there's also like the conceptual things, like the definitions of terms in the hypothesis. And that's where I think, so like your example, Samin, of like extroversion and happiness, I think part of the reason it would be hard to reverse the evidence is because to a personality psychologist, we've now, which is not, was not the case 50 years ago, but we've now converged on a pretty strong agreement in the field of what extroversion means. Mm -hmm. Whereas like, you know, if you go to, you know, like a Myers-Briggsy definition where extroversion means like outward attentional focus or whatever, and introversion means being introspective rather than reserved or withdrawn. Um, like there, were, there used to be more looseness about that. And so part of the reason, and, and happiness too, hap, you know, but I mean, I think there even still is, like you could probably like go to Carol Riff's, you know, six dimensions and you might be able to pick the one that has the lowest correlation with extroversion or whatever. So there, but I think the more of that looseness, the more underspecification there is. One of, like, there's not methodological paradigms for how you study this thing, and two, there's not like this, not the beyond the statement itself, like this very large web of definitions, assumptions, accepted consensuses that defines and constrains how you're able to do this. And I think that's that's true of a lot of social cycle. That's true of I think a lot of personality cycle. Although in some areas we're doing okay. And I think you, that's why, like, maybe in some other fields, you wouldn't see as much looseness. It's, it's not because the hypotheses yeah. are better. It's because they're, they're sitting on a bedrock of more solid support mm-hmm. and assumptions. But that might be a bad thing. Like, if, if we all settle on using, like, one of two or three measures to measure the big five, for example, mm-hmm. as is the case in personality, uh, we might be underestimating the heterogeneity, actually, right? Like, if we mm-hmm. had let more diverse operationalizations exist, then maybe we would see that this effect really isn't as robust. Um, on the other hand, like I think it's fair for a field to define a construct a certain way, yeah. and m- operationalizations that deviate too much from how we've defined it yeah. are no longer considered valid operationalizations of that construct. Yeah. I mean, one point that they make in the paper that I think is uh, is helpful is that they say that they, in some ways, they're likely underestimating heterogeneity, um, in part because they... Uh, contacted labs through their own research, like through their own professional networks, and in part because all of these studies are done um, online. So there's a limitation um, already in the heterogeneity that they'll find. Um, But I think it raises an interesting question of, so like one thing, one thought I had over and over again reading this paper is like, wow, our robustness tests that we do are so limited, right? Like typically what a robustness test means is the authors of the original paper doing their own robustness tests with their own data. So not even collecting new data, but just like reanalyzing their data a bunch of different ways, which we already think of as like going above and beyond. Very few people do that. Then there's direct replications, which is like new data, but still not varying anything intentionally. And then what they're doing is basically the next level robustness test. And then the question to me becomes like, at what point does a variation become no longer robustness test? But like, like if let's say I said, I bet you can't get a negative correlation between extroversion happiness. And someone said, oh, yeah, well, here I did. And it turned out that the way they measured either extroversion or happiness, like doesn't fit with my conceptual definition of the construct, Mm -hmm. then I wouldn't call it a robustness test. And so I think, yeah, I think I think that the way they did it here, it clearly falls under the umbrella of robustness tests, like researchers who in good faith tried to operationalize a test of the research question. Um, you know, designed a, a valid study and so on. So, like, it would be weird to exclude those as a valid way to test that hypothesis. And, yeah, so one one conclusion I drew from that is that, like, our robustness tests as we currently think of them are extremely limited. There's all this other ways of being robust that we never test, which is related to Talia Arconi's paper and generally, mm-hmm. like, concerns about um, stimuli and other things that are treated as if they're fixed effects. Um but then also, like, yeah, I I don't know where the line is. I don't think they're coming anywhere close to the line of where I would no longer call this a robustness test. But at some point, you're into a world of, like, yeah, that produces a different result because it's testing a completely different question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a... Well, it's... I was going to change the topic a little bit. Um, oh, well, okay. Let me, go ahead. let me just to sort of tack on to that. Yeah, there, there's a really interesting... Um, 
set of papers that Bill McGuire wrote about, he called it perspectivism. And, you know, he, there's this like famous line where he says like, all hypotheses are both true and false. And I think part of what he's getting at is this idea that, um, you know, I think what you're talking about, Samin, is kind of like conceptual robustness, right? It's like when you have a term, how do you like, is it robust over different acceptable definitions, conceptual definitions of it? Is it robust over different, uh, you know, translations of that into measurements or into procedures? Is it robust to different um, ways of sampling or drawing from it? So this is like, like the first one, you know, is a negative automatic associations with members of negatively stereotyped social groups, right? And so like, I think the the stimulus sampling approach to that would say you have to have like a representative sample of negatively stereotyped social groups. Um, and so the question is like, is this robust to like letting people pick whatever social group they want, right? So, you know, and, and McGuire's idea was that we don't, uh, um, like it's not very interesting to test a yes or no answer to a hypothesis. What's interesting is to figure out when it's true and when it's not true and why. And and some of that is the traditional empirical approach of moderator analysis. But some of that for him, I think, was also like, um, uh, when is it true or not true for different valid interpretations or different valid definitions or, or those kinds of things. So like the, the, the extroversion example you gave, like, I, and this is, this is where I think it gets complicated is like, if everyone agrees what extroversion is and what it isn't, then that's we're in one scenario, right? Then we can look at an operationalization or a study. We could say, oh, that's good or bad. But you know, sometimes they're like, what's an acceptable definition of this thing a field hasn't agreed on yet? Um, and yeah, and that that I think that's probably a, a sign that there's some conceptual work to do, you know, whether it's construct validation or, or theory development or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there's, uh, a pretty pessimistic take that you can, um, take from this paper and I'm curious what you guys think. So like, presumably, I guess. Samin completely agrees. <laughs> well, I, I just, like, I'm having this moment. The two of you are sitting side by side and I'm like, wait, who's bringing the pessimistic take? Anyway, go on. So, I mean, presumably like we do these studies and things like that because we want to, um, be better able to predict what's going to happen in situations that we encounter in real life. Um, and so let's say somebody wants to know, I don't know how, like their intervention is going to influence like people's intellectual humility or something like that. So this study suggests, first of all, um, that in the in a specific situation, if you know the materials and you know the way that something is being tested, the correlation between scientists predictions and, um, the results is is 0.71, which is outrageous, in my opinion, outrageously high. Um, and they didn't find expertise effects there. So if we're really, I mean, I guess I'm doing what we what this paper says you shouldn't. If we extrapolate beyond this population, then maybe even maybe even non-experts would be relatively good at guessing um, the outcome of an experiment, given like knowing the methodology and the materials. Um, and then we also can learn from this paper that if we were to test the question in a different setting or with different materials, then we could get a completely different answer. So like the pessimistic take in my opinion is um, in the context in which we're going to do the experiment, we already know the answer and learning from other contexts is useless. Um, so then why do we bother <laughs> Sanjay? I, I, I agree with your, with your pessimism. Actually, I think, I think this highlights a huge, a very like fruitful and productive way of doing research. I'm not gonna there. You know, some people have been very successful doing this. Um, where you come, you start with a really broad, grand claim that that maybe sounds interesting or exciting. Um, you come up with some evidence for it, and and one way you can get the evidence for it is by p hacking, right? Mm -hmm. But but even if you if you don't, what this study suggests is that like you come up with a set of circumstances in which you know this the study is consistent with it, you know, confirmation bias driven, whatever, um, and then and then you say you got support for it, and then if you you can then make a productive career by saying, oh, I found 
boundary conditions or moderators or if other people come along and they say, hey, look, I, I tried to run this, but I did it in this other population or I, I changed the methods or whatever. You say, oh, that's a boundary condition. And so you still you hang on to the grand the like grandiose claim. And what you've never done. And th- this is, you know, um, so I mean, I think one solution to that. And there was kind of a little bit of a, uh, I mean, we've referenced Tali Arconi's stimulus sampling paper a couple times, and, and Daniel Lockins had a blog post where he was disagreeing. And I, I think I think both actually have a, a solution to it, or at least a different way of going at it, right? So one is you say, look, if you want to make this grand claim, you have to properly sample from the conceptual and empirical space that covers the breadth of your claim, right? If you're saying people do blah, 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 then you have to sample people in a representative way. If you're saying you know, this, uh, this situation has this effect, then you have to sample real world instances of the situation, right? That's one way. The other way is you take a de- deductive approach. You say, no, if this claim is true, then it should be true in this experiment. But then you have to have severity of your test. You have to, the, the, it can't just be, I can come up with an experimental paradigm that's consistent with it. It has to be an experimental paradigm where if the theory is not true, it would be extremely improbable that I would get that result. And that's what we hardly ever do, right? You you have this grand mm-hmm. claim and you come up with some something that's consistent with it, but it's consistent with all kinds of yeah, other right. assumptions too besides your theory. And because we're human beings and we do confirmation bias and, and we're not, you know, modus tollenzers or whatever naturally, um, we kind of don't notice and, and we get, you know, hands waved in our face, look at my exciting counterintuitive result, blah, 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 and, and we're good with it. So I, I'm, I'm, I see a lot of stuff that has that structure, that, that it's basically confirmation bias-driven research. And, and if people were doing representative population and stimulus and context sampling, it, we'd, we'd be in a different boat. And if they were doing severe testing, we'd be in a different boat, mm. but they're not doing either. Or another uh, potential solution that I think Tal mentioned and that this paper made me think of is like, maybe we should stop making the leap from our narrow test yeah. to the broader hypothesis. Forget the theory, even just the like one step, mm-hmm. up, one level of hypothesis. And I've seen a lot of papers like that where like the narrow study was interesting, but like kind of obvious or whatever. And what sold it, and especially if it's in a very prestigious journal, what sold it was the story they told about it at a, at a, le- a more abstract level. And often those are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. And even when they're not ridiculous, though, like in this, this case, I, I didn't look in detail at the operationalizations and designs mm-hmm. of the studies, but my guess is that they're not all that far from the research question. But even then other than for hypothesis two, it suggests that like um, you aren't getting a, 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 your single operationalization design isn't likely to reflect what a typical operationalization or design would produce. So maybe we shouldn't say we're testing the hypothesis. We should say we're testing something. We should use language closer to the actual measured constructs. And we should just say we're design. doing this test. Yeah. I mean, and at, a, at an extreme, I recently heard somebody tell me that they just heard Bill Ravel give a talk where he said we shouldn't even label our constructs. <laughs> we should be like, if people answer Design. yes to do you like yeah. to go to parties, then they also answer right. yes to how happy are you or whatever. Oh, wow. Bill Bill has uh, rediscovered operationalism from <laughs> the 1930s. Yeah. Uh, uh, that was that, you know, the. So I, I find that that idea, I mean, in general, like, I find it personally, like, scientifically and aesthetically appealing to want people to make narrower claims. I think that the, like, it feels like it could go too far. And I don't think I don't think the modal scientific claim in psychology is at risk of having gone too far. So maybe I shouldn't be worried about this. But like, you know, you could get to an extreme that's kind of like that. Like, all I can say is, like, this thing occurred in this situation. I think it um, plays... And where I define it with, like, the, the, the walls were painted pale right. blue, and the RA had, like, Nike sneakers rather than Adidas or whatever. Um, so, like, at some point, you have to yeah. you have to commit to what matters and what doesn't. Right. And, and the, I think the problem is that people are committing to none of it matters. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. in mice effect, mm-hmm. right? Like they're, they're, the fact that this was done in mice, they're not even committing to that being a limiting factor mm-hmm. um, until James Heathers came along and embarrassed yeah. them. Yeah, I mean, I think the it. problem with like 
let's just call it Belle Ravel's view, even though this is like third hand at this point. Um, but the problem with that extreme I'm, is like, sure I that, think it appeals yeah. to scientists wanting to seem objective and value free. And so we need to own that we chose this operation for yeah, a reason. Right. And we think it does reflect a construct. So I don't want to go all the way to like, you're not responsible for your, yeah the goals of the study. You just have to describe what happened. I think okay. you should say what you were attempting to, what hypothesis or research question you were attempting to test. But this suggests to me that we need to be much narrower and, or at least much less confident in how well we tested that slightly broader question or hypothesis. I think maybe part of why, part of why I struggle with this is that like, I, I've always been drawn to somewhat more ecologically valid designs, right? So I do a lot of research on interpersonal perception where the like similar questions were classically examined with like vignettes or with like extremely artificial constrained stimuli. And so we do things like we bring people into the laboratory to have social interactions where they actually meet each other and interact. And I, I want credit for that being closer to the real world, but I also like, I don't want people, I don't want to try to get away with, and I don't think people should let me get away with saying that like a social interaction in our lab is the same thing that would have happened in a business setting or between family members at home. Yeah, whatever, but it's right? infuriating when someone writes a vignette and gets away with that leap. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so so right. So I want to, I want to get more credit than the vignette people, right. but I also want to be held responsible for not saying like I have perfectly reproduced real life. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that for me is the struggle. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't want to go too far in either direction. I, and I don't know how to define like how to get the right amount of credit, not too much, not too little. And I think there are a lot of instances like that where you want more than the, the narrowest version, but the rest of the world wants the person to, to not go overboard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, did we, uh, have we put a pin in it? Are there other other things we, we need to talk about? I had one about very short observation about the paper. that I, yeah. I loved it so much that I couldn't help my finding myself thinking, what the hell did Psych Bull ever do to deserve this paper? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, this is just my jealousy oh, as a journal editor. Ending, ending with some shade at Psych Bull, <laughs> the, the granddaddy of all journals. There might be an answer to that. Maybe Psych Bull has demonstrated that its values are aligned with the kinds of goals that this kind of research is trying. Like, I see these researchers as doing so much work to try to improve psychology. Yeah. I'm curious whether Psych Bull has done something to flag itself or signal that it's a journal that wants, that shares that goal. And if so, great. They deserve this paper. If not, they got super lucky that the authors chose Psych Bull. <laughs> well, they, they accepted this paper. That's true. So, so that's one data they would, point. Yeah, but, Good on them for doing that. I, I wonder if any journals rejected this paper. If they did, they're crazy, in my opinion. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, uh, cool. I think uh, that's a good that's a good closing thought. Uh, shame on any journals that rejected this paper. Um, props to Psych Bull for a single data point of good and maybe that's maybe that's representative of more. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks. And just for the record, I don't have a listening. negative stereotype of Psych Bull. I have a neutral stereotype of Psych Bull. Right, right, And it's not right, very yeah, well informed, yeah, yeah. so I could be wrong. Yes, I'll just cut it off All before right. she says that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks everybody for listening to the Black Goat. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.